You're listening to the rebroadcast of an episode of The Ragged Edge. My name is Richard Stone. So I think if violence could get rid of racism, the Civil War would have done it. It didn't. That What we have to do is grieve away our white privilege. My guest this week is Jim Rigby. He's the pastor of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Austin and an implacable champion for social justice. He's been at the forefront of work to ease the burdens on detained immigrant families to the point that his church gave sanctuary to several undocumented immigrants and runs one of the most aggressive homeless protection programs in the area. I asked him to be on the show to talk about how we as a society, are dealing with our collective grief. Our conversation extended to the history of the Christian church and Western civilization and questioned the reasoning behind Dr. King's famous statement about the arc of the universe bending towards justice. We'll get to that interview right after the break. If you tuned in this week expecting something new, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm exploring a new storytelling format, well, new to me at any rate. So I'm taking a couple of weeks away from my interviews to see if I can figure out how to report, record, edit, and process this new thing. Uh, Wish me luck. I'll be back soon, but in the meantime, here's my interview from September with Jim Rigby. Jim Rigby, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. The reason that I wanted to talk to you is because after I tried to process Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing over the weekend and considered what I was going to say in this week's podcast, I needed to talk to somebody with some empathy and some compassion, Uh, not the politics of things, because I think our audience, my audience is getting that from all other platforms and media, but how to process it. And so I think I'd like to begin kind of where you and I left off yesterday when we were talking about this, and that is, how are we as a culture dealing dealing with grief? Well, I think that's a great question because I think a lot of what we're seeing is hatred and intolerance right now is people grieving worldviews that have been dead for a long, long time. And we've enabled, for example, we of the church have enabled people to uh, have an idea of ethics that's centered around morals of one particular type of culture. And then when we started learning new things about the human situation, where there are lots lots of uh, loving relationships that are not binary, or that uh, just because something's in the Bible does not mean that it's fitting for today. People were just given an inadequate worldview, and I think the only way you can get out of that is to grieve it. So I think if violence could get rid of racism, the Civil War would have done it. It didn't. That What we have to do is grieve away our white privilege, We have to, but we have to get the tools to do that. So that's I think, I think it's a dangerous time with the, the climate. It's, it's terrifying. At the same time, it's like for many people in the world, it's always been oppressive, and they've always felt like we feel right now. So this is also an opportunity to shift the weight of governing to the whole world family, to become world citizens. Right, right. The grief that we're trying to process is not just the progressives. Um, you implied yesterday when we were talking that it's really all sides of the, um, I don't want to say both sides because I don't think there are two, I think there are dozens. All sides of this of this battle, everybody is going through some kind of grief processing. Yeah, I think that particularly as white Christian males, um, I'm not speaking for you, I'm speaking for myself. 
I think we were taught a false history. We were taught a kind of a false view of ethics and even of science. And we have to grieve out of that. So I think a lot of what's making people turn to guns and turn to conspiracy theories and all of that is, you know, ungrieved loss. Like we have to let go of the idea that we're better because we're white. We just we have to let go of it. But to do that takes emotional change as well as mental change. And, and like a lot of other processing, you have to you have to acknowledge that the problem exists or that 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 exists within your brain or within your your emotional makeup. Uh, it's like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you can't get help unless you acknowledge that you're an alcoholic. If you are in an, in an abusive relationship and you're the, the protagonist, you have to acknowledge that you are the one who's you know, you're the one who's causing that. You know, you look at something like capitalism, it's like that's almost you almost can't talk about it in the United States without people going catatonic. At the same time, we're not going to save the planet within an economic system, any economic system. It's like we have to put the economic system within environmentalism. And that's, you know, that's going to take a grieving process for everybody because, I mean, I can clearly see where the conservatives are going awry. But, you know, the Democratic Party is doing a lot of exactly same things and just covering for it with better rhetoric. <laughs> better rhetoric. <laughs> I'm sorry, but but I was reading something today about Roe versus Wade, and uh, the the writer warned that it's people on both sides of that on the on the fringes of both of those those who promise to protect and those who promise to 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 overturn it are very often disingenuous. They're just using that as a wedge issue, and they're developing the rhetoric around that particular issue, and that that's a very poor way to approach the issue of reproductive rights and how we um, deal with unwanted pregnancies. I mean, there's better ways to do it than arguing over this one court case. Yeah, and I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think it's great that you brought her up in terms of the grief, because what makes us radiate towards someone like that is they illumine the principles that make democracy possible. And she was very conscious of being Jewish. And her idea of social justice and the, the rights of every person was not just a political position. It was who she was. And when she looked at the Constitution, she saw, I mean, she famously talked about other constitutions since World War II all had a recognition that men and women are equal, but our Constitution does not. So our Constitution has some real frailties to it that she said she looked at the Constitution, saw the equality principle. And that's what Martin Luther King did, too. He, he kind of projected the Declaration of Independence onto the Constitution because the Constitution was by, for, and of white, rich males. But that's not the heart of it. Like the, the heart of the American dream is life, liberty, pursuit, happiness for all people. So somebody like her who, who you know, is in this very high position of power and comes completely from principle. I mean, she did make some bad mistakes too, but none of us is perfect. And what I think is inspiring to us is that you can't save democracy with heroes. So glorifying her or Trump or anybody is not going to get us out of this mess. But if they are personifying certain principles that make democracy possible, then they, they kind of center us towards where we need to be. Does the arc of the moral universe bend to justice? Well, that's Martin Luther King about that. Um, well, then. I, I am not, he's more trusting than I am. I think that we get what we sow. I mean, I think that the universe can take us there if that's where our hearts are longing for. That idea of a pendulum behind things that's going to adjust everything. I think that's hugely part of the disempowerment of the American people. I don't think there is, you know, some big puppet master who's going to, you know, through the economic system or through religion or through anything. It's like we have to take responsibility for our lives and our world. The biblical story is that the planet was given to us to care for. So, you know, the idea that somehow God is supposed to override our greed, 
I, I think is, I mean, I, th- I think religion is, is, is a set of parables and poems anyway. I don't think any of it's literally true. At the same time, I think it's trying to illumine the deep principles that make us human and align us to nature. So I'm glad I've given my life to religion, but I think religion is a huge problem when it's childish. How did social justice uh, and the pursuit of social justice become divorced from modern day Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity? But that that's always kind of, you know, really stonkered me in my, in my thinking that, yeah. you know, that the, the, there are these people who say the words, yeah. Yeah. but then don't, you know, it's all walk the walk, talk the talk kind of a thing. Absolutely. But, but they co-opted the whole thing. People from my congregation that are listening right now are going to grimace because they've heard this so many times before. So when Christianity got to Europe, it went through a transformation. The Emperor Constantine organized it and he did it by force and he did it for his own purposes. Originally, the creeds were literally in Greek. The word meant symbol. But what happened then when it got to Europe and the European languages that are very noun centered and verb centered, it became literal. And what Constantine did and what Augustine played into and certainly Luther and and Calvin played into is the shift from an ethical religion that you see on the, at the Sermon on the Mount, so the religion of Jesus, to a religion about Jesus that had nothing to do with anything he ever taught. It became about reciting words, obeying morals, criticizing other people, but it was all very hierarchical. It plugged into the European colonial mindset. And, 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 pat- just, and patriarchal, too. Yes, yes. So that you look at the Jesus of European and American churches is it looks a whole lot like a tennis instructor from Sweden than it does like a Palestinian rabbi sitting on a golden throne. I mean, that's Christopher Columbus. That's not Jesus. Right. A, a mutual friend asked me to suggest that I pose this question and it came up quicker than I thought it would. How did how did conservatives co-opt the most famous socialist in history? That's a good question. Well, again, I think I think it was first depoliticized. And that's what when people think that they're not political, you know, when a white person takes up the privilege of being white male and all of that and thinks that they're not being political. It's I, I think it's just a trance. You know, it's it's that what happens is most people put the teachings of Jesus within the context of the Apostles Creed. It's like what he taught is it's about compassion, forgiveness, not judging, sharing that kind of stuff. But then when you turn it into this scheme to save you from hell and there was a fall and an atonement and all this kind of stuff, it's like you lose Jesus in the process. The, the, the greatest rebuttal to fundamentalism is the Sermon on the Mount that's ever been had. They cannot affirm the Sermon on the Mount. They can't. Yeah, that, it, that that's another thing that's always kind of troubled me was why so much emphasis on the Old Testament and so little emphasis on the Beatitudes. You know, I know the political machinations of putting, you know, maybe it was had to do with a movie or something like that. But everybody wants Ten Commandments. To be posted on the on the on the court walls or on the on the public buildings, and nobody wants the beatitudes. And that, that, that yeah. it seems like they've got the cart before the horse here. What's ironic is if you look at the Jewish scriptures, that's not where they fall down. It's like you don't see that many rabbis here in the states protesting against gay marriage or abortion. That's a Christian thing using the Jewish scriptures and distorting them. The Ten Commandments in the in the Jewish faith, the word isn't commandment; it's words. The ten words. It was a part of this Exodus story. It wasn't. It wasn't this abstracted set of laws. So it, to me, it's like the Jewish scriptures are being misused, and a lot of safeguards, like the Sabbath. You don't work on the Sabbath. That's a human rights kind of thing. The Shema says you have to love with all of your heart, mind, and strength, which means you can't just surrender to a belief system or a moral system. Or I mean, I think there's safeguards in the Jewish system that aren't there in Christianity. 
And it's like for God in the Old Testament, it was also very a natural phenomenon. So it wasn't just a human being. But when you think of it just as a human being, then you have this terror kind of a tyrant. But it's not that. It's that, you know, life and time and all of those things, they're very devastating to us. Right. And um, and in many ways, it was the way to explain the world around them. Yeah. And it's it at the level of experience, it's true. You know, time gets the last vote and, and you have to align yourself and give yourself to that. And then you're OK. But when you take it literally, then it becomes an obstacle between you and your own roots into the universe, into life, into nature. So... You know, I grew up believing in fair play and mm-hmm. and following the rules. Well, OK, wait a minute. I, I grew up believing and knowing what the rules were. So you, when you broke them, you broke them with intent. Right. Um, it feels like the gloves have all come off. Right. Yeah. That certain segments of this of our society and our political our body political no longer observes the law, much less the norms. How yeah. how can those of us who expect fair play from others engage in the social justice efforts that that need to be that you spoke up at the beginning. How can we do this when the people we're debating don't observe any of the norms or even the laws? Right. And I think we ourselves, the more privilege we have, the more we have this kind of spiritual disability that we don't realize that we have. We don't feel what our power means for other people and we don't think to ask the question. I mean, to me, law is like the ancients always said, the law is like a spider web that captures the small insects and lets the great beasts go by. So law has never been what protects. There are principles that protect democracy, but there has to be this aspiration. That was another thing Ruth Boehner Ginsburg said is that uh, the Constitution means nothing if the people do not have a yearning for liberty and freedom. As you get organized, you have to have citizens first, people of duty, people of character, people with a mutual social contract. I mean, that goes back to Rousseau. We've lost the really sinews of, of civil society. So I think it's getting back to that and correcting the shortcomings because the Enlightenment obviously didn't see women. It didn't see people of color, but it, it, it had an aspiration within it that we just need to make it faithful to. How do we bring that civil society back? Well, you got me. Um, but I, I think we just have to get back to square one in terms of teaching civics again in school and just realize how how really pivotal that is for the survival of any cu- culture. But, but, you know, people like Rousseau or the habeas corpus or why there's a division of powers, why one person doesn't rule a, a democracy, th- those principles of e pluribus unum, all that stuff has been lost. So it's a teaching time. It's a terrible time. It's a frightening time. It's a, a time of great grief. But it's also an opportunity for incredible learning. I think the combination of Black Lives Matter and COVID has really challenged a lot of white people to step off the podium. I mean, to step off the pedestal and join the human race. And and what we're seeing is from others is their inability to process that. Yeah. That, that's why you you have the the kid who went to the BLM protest or in in I forget what what state it was and just shot a couple people. Yeah. Uh, and that's the tragedy right there. I mean, here's a kid who wants to be liked, who wants to be important, who wants to feel strong and be a savior. He loves Donald Trump. He reads all this stuff. He loves the police. And he doesn't realize that's a mythological narrative. So he, underage, gets, um, I don't know the right nomenclature. I think of it as an automatic weapon. The, the gun lovers will you know, say some kind of nomenclature that's more specific. But whatever it is, an underage 
kid goes across a state line to protect, you know, home and country. And that's a recipe for disaster. But that's the whole Tea Party movement. That's everything. It's like this sense of grief that comes just because black people and women want the same things we have and people of color and, and Muslims and Jewish people and atheists. When your identity is false, then that feels like an incredible loss because that's where you're getting your value from, from being better than other people. You never say it. You never admit it to yourself. But that's what I learned about myself. It's like it's it's this false mountain that you, you've been taught that you're standing on, that Columbus discovered America, even though there were people there. It's insane. It's violent. It's brutal. Uh, I was reading not long ago about um, Martha Washington and her relationship to the enslaved people and how horrifying it is that this beloved figure of Martha Washington is, you know, she's a, a kidnapper, an enslaver. And somehow we have to be able to see both of those at the same time. We have to see that they're human beings. At the same time, these systems are monstrous. Right. Donald Trump is the underbelly of who we all are until we become self-aware. That that idea that America, you think of like Clinton going into Lebanon, that, that we have this arrogance that we can go in and fix things, even though we have this short attention span. So there's actual slavery in Libya now because, and you look at Honduras, you look at El Salvador, all these places around the world. It's like we only care enough to guard our own interests and then we lose interest. And that's not just Donald Trump. That's us. So to me, it's like we, we have to I mean, First of all, you have to have the hope that it's going to be a happier world when you're part of the world community. You have to realize you're not happy now, but there's not enough stuff in the world to replace dignity. So to realize this is not a sad path that you're being asked to walk. You know, I just think it's a time of crisis and of learning. We have that opportunity. We, we can choose to survive and have a better world. But I don't think that there's an art. The, the universe owes us nothing. You know, our lives are a complete gift. We have to take responsibility for this. What keeps you up at night? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, you know, I mean, the climate change is the one, the one topic that, you know, we won't get back. If, if we don't do something, I, I'm kind of a weird person. My spirituality is as much Eastern as it is Western. So to me, it's about manifesting for however long we can. So I don't, to me, it's like um, I'm concerned and I, I want to work as hard as I can. But I just, I don't think that, um, you know, I, th- I think if this is our last era as a species, we just need to live in dignity and joy and gratitude. However things go, we have, it's basically the same path. It's like when a couple comes in and they are talking about getting divorced. It's like, it's the same path to fix the relationship and to get a divorce. Actually, what's important is coming to know yourself and what you need, and what you can give each other and what you can't give each other, and then to make a decision. So what the, the, the decisions we worry about most sometimes are the least important. The first thing is who are we and, and how do we share life together? So, you know, I, I, I don't. So it's almost a know thyself kind of. Yeah, uh, of, yeah, um, yeah. You know, a lot of us have seen this coming for a long time. I mean, I was a, a little kid, like reading Viktor Frankl, and you know, you you could see this. We were on this road for a long, long time. I mean, Trump stunned me and surprised me that he went so quickly. But this is when you ignore climate. This is the road you're you're going to these fires. And Obama's going at 25 miles an hour towards the cliff. Trump is going 500 miles an hour towards the cliff. But it's like capitalism is the problem. Right, right. Even electing Biden isn't really going to change the direction. He may change the speed, but not necessarily the direction. But it will be a tourniquet to stop some of the bleeding. And then we can, if we will protest like we do under Trump and under Bush, when we have somebody who will listen to us, 
I mean, just think how different the world would be if, if instead of thinking in personalities, we thought of principles. You know, just step out of that drama of good and evil and just what, what does the world need? What does every human being deserve? I mean, just changing the conversation makes a big difference. Right, right. What am I forget, forgetting to ask about? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you mean, what, like, what would I like to yeah. close out with? Or, yeah. What would you like to close out with? You know, whoever I talk to, whenever I like speak, it's not happening a whole lot these days with COVID, but I just think hope is very important right now. Not hope in the sense that things will work out, but hope in the sense that we can give our lives as a gift, uh, that we can have a meaningful, noble path for our days. And I think, you know, in a, a universe that's winding down through entropy and that's evolving and all this kind of thing, that's kind of the game all along. You know, there is no happy ever after. You don't, you don't, time is not linear. So to recalibrate ourselves to nature and to life and just to enjoy the journey with gratitude and, and give ourselves to, you know, our highest values. I think that's, we could have a good, happy, noble, peaceful life, regardless of how things turn out in the macrocosm. If we know ourselves first. Yeah. Well, Jim Rigby, thank you very much. Cool. Thank you for the conversation. Great questions. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. A reminder, you can find The Ragged Edge on Apple Podcasts or wherever you look for shows like this. If you like the show, rate it and review it. Every positive review helps listeners find us, and, well, we like that. The Ragged Edge is a production of RTS Connect, where public-facing organizations will find help to make their point, then stay on point. Info at rtsconnect.org. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Digital Broadcasting. Join Black Sparrow's Patreon and give these wonderful free-range DJs a boost. Patreon.com slash Black Sparrow. Opinion expressed on the Ragged Edge are those of the speakers and now don't necessarily reflect those of KBSR. Original music composed and performed by Ryan Stone. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Ragged Edge. See you next week.